Thank you, uh, Jeanette, for that sweet prayer. This, about a week and a half ago, um, we had, once a month we have a, uh, a Covenant Pastors Zoom meeting, and all the Covenant Pastors from Arizona uh, join in. And uh, as we were talking, um, several of the pastors mentioned how that many of their people are getting discouraged, uh, being locked indoors and not being able to get out. And one pastor said that a woman told her that she felt like um, the darkness was kind of surrounding her. Uh, that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, the title of the message is The Dark Night of the Soul. And uh, we're looking at Jeremiah chapter 20. And I pray that you will receive this word today um, and uh, allow it to uh, transform you. So if you'll just uh, uh, bear with me as we pray before the message. If you feel comfortable extending your hands to just uh, show a sign of uh, receptivity to the word. So Father, here we are, uh, your people, uh, scattered all over the city and some scattered all over the country. We pray, Lord, that as we open your word now, that you would open our hearts to receive it, open our ears. Help us, Father, to hear what you would have us to hear and to respond by faith. We thank you, Father, that your word is alive and at times electric within us. And we pray, that, Father, that this word would do that today. Uh, thank you, Father. May uh, your words be remembered and may my words that are not important be quickly forgotten. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So you're walking through life. Things are not perfect, but they're pretty good. You have a routine, a rhythm in life. God is gracious and good. Your praises are heard every Sunday at church and often throughout the week. Yes, we pray and teach our children to pray. God is great. God is good. And we believe it. It's more than a mantra, and it's more than just a religious slogan. It rings true in our soul. God is great. God is good. Then, in an instant, everything changes. March 2020, COVID-19. The world absolutely is turned upside down. Another black man is killed by a police officer. Riots ensue. In my story, you hear a siren and you discover your 10-year-old son has been hit by a car. He clings to life. Everything stops. Everything is suspended. You sit in the doctor's office and he uses the word cancer. You go to have a, your pregnancy checked up and the pediatrician says that the baby is not thriving. There's a knock on the door. It's a policeman. Your son has been arrested. And then when you have a son or a daughter that's actively in the Marines in Afghanistan, you notice that there is a military vehicle parked outside and a chaplain is walking to your door. You stand at a graveside blinking away tears. Your husband leaves a note. He wants a divorce. There's another woman. 
Where's God in these moments? Why did it happen to me? Lord, I've been faithful, haven't I? Why me? Where is my good and great God now? The psalmist calls this the dark night of the soul. That psalmist was David. David felt abandoned by God, being chased by Saul, hiding in a cave. He wrote these words in Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me or forsaken me? Why are you so far away when I groan for help? Every day I call to you, my God, but you do not answer. Every night you hear my voice, but I find no relief. And Jesus, on the cross, actually quoted Psalm 22.1 when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And for David, if that wasn't enough to just to feel abandoned and alone, his enemies ridiculed him. Listen to what they said in Psalm 22.8. Is this the one who relies on the Lord? Then let the Lord save him. If the Lord loves him so much, let the Lord rescue him. Maybe you've felt that way as well. How is it possible that David and even Jesus and you and I feel so abandoned by God at times. The dark night of the soul indeed. Psalm 35, we read these words, weeping may last through the night, but joy comes in the morning. Really? When does the morning come? For many, they ask, how long does the night last? When really is the morning going to arrive? And, and we wait. Entering three and a half months into the pandemic. A month ago, we felt like things were starting to get better. Uh, people were starting to go outdoors and then a spike. And things are worse than ever in our country. Now, our friend Jeremiah experienced a dark night of the soul as well. As you know, Jeremiah was faithfully proclaiming the word of God. And he was telling the Israelites how far they had drifted from the path that God intended for them. He said, you're chasing after idols. You're committing adultery with other gods. You're doing all the things that I've told you not to do. And you're doing those over and over and over again. Embracing the scarecrow turning to Baal, the god of the Assyrians. Well, Pasher, who was a temple priest, actually he was kind of like the temple police, said these words to Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. Now Pasher, son of Immer, the priest in charge of the temple of the Lord, heard what Jeremiah was prophesying. Now he's been preaching for about 10 chapters here. So he arrested Jeremiah the prophet and had him whipped and put in stocks at the Benjamin gate of the Lord's temple. What happened to the adage that uh, don't shoot the messenger? 
Jeremiah was the messenger, and he was put in stocks. He was beaten. So Jeremiah faces this darkness, and he's wondering, God, where are you? It's no wonder that he has this complaint and wanting to blame someone, yes, even God. It's just not fair. So this is what Jeremiah said in verses 7 to 9 of verse chapter 20. Oh Lord, you misled me. He's blaming God. You misled me. And, al- and I allowed myself to be misled. You are stronger than I am, and you overpowered me. Now he's saying, God, you made me do this, right? Now I am mocked every day. Everyone laughs at me. When I speak, the words burst out. Violence and destruction, I shout. So these messages from the Lord have made me a household joke. But if I say I'll never mention the Lord or speak in his name again, his word burns in my heart like fire. It's like a fire in my bones. I am worn out trying to hold it in. I can't do it. Jeremiah says, God, everybody's making fun of me. I'm giving them exactly the message that you told me to give. And now they're mocking me and they're making fun of me and they imprison me and they beat me. And yet if I say, okay, I'm just not going to prophesy anymore. I'm not going to do it. The message, God, that you gave me is burning inside of me. I can't keep quiet. What do I do? The dark night of the soul, indeed. Suffering, pain, Author, uh, author Kathleen Norris, who wrote a commentary on the book of John, Jeremiah, explains how that Jeremiah's sufferings became the agonies of her own soul. This is a very personal uh, testimony. This is what she wrote. Opening oneself to a prophet as anguished as Jeremiah is, is painful. On some mornings, I found it impossible. The voice of Jeremiah is compelling, often on an overwhelming personal level. One morning I was so worn out by the emotional roller coaster of chapter 20 that after prayers I walked to my apartment and I went back to bed. That's why Sherry and I went up to Payson. I couldn't take any more of Jeremiah 20, right? Have you ever experienced suffering so real, agony so overwhelming that you just pull the covers over your head? Well, that day in October 1989, when I heard that siren and found out that the child that was hit on a bicycle by a car was my son, Tyler, that um, began a fairly long um, journey into the dark night of the soul, at least for me. Now, each one of us grieved differently. Uh, Sherry was very very real and very open and honest with her grief. I tried to hide mine, somehow tried to be strong for my 16-year-old daughter, Tamara, and my 12-year-old son, Nathan. Uh, But we all grieved. I I remember so many nights uh, hearing Sherry cry herself to sleep and say, Lord, how long? What are you going to take this away? How long? Well, after two weeks of really struggling with my own grief and and experiencing the grief of my wife and my children, I decided to go back to church. Um, the church said, take as much time as you need off. But after two weeks, I went back to the office and, 
and just tried to dig into my work and not and forget everything. Twenty minutes I was at my I was twenty minutes after I got to my office, the phone rang. And my secretary said it was for me. And it was a young mother in our church who just found out that her baby that night had died of SIDS. And I said, after I hung up on the phone, tried to comfort her, started planning the arrangements for a funeral. I said, Lord, how long? (laughs) How long? Jeremiah's situation was dire. He was beaten. He was put in stocks. The word literally means thrashed and tortured. Now the word for stocks in the Hebrew language is mapiket, mapiket. And it means a twisting, kind of clamping of wrists and feet. And then this torture device pulls you and twists you at the same time. So it wasn't that Jeremiah was just thrown into jail. He was tortured for the things that God told him to tell the Israelites. If anyone had a place to gripe and complain, God, why me? I'm doing exactly what you told me to do. Why do I have to suffer this way? And even more poignant, Jeremiah asks, where are you? And then later Jeremiah says, why was I even born? Questions in the night. This problem of pain and suffering, especially for the innocent, is what Philip Yancey calls the problem that never goes away. Yancey also declared that suffering and the pain in our world today is like the question mark turned like a fish hook in the human heart. George Barna says in his research, the number one complaint that non-Christians have about God and Christianity is this question. Why is there pain and suffering in the world if there is a good and gracious God? That would be a very important question that I would ask if I were a non-Christian. And guess what? I ask that as a Christ follower. Why is there pain and suffering in the world? That's Jeremiah's question. That's the psalmist's question. That was Jesus' question on the cross. I'm sure that's your question and mine as well. So I'd like to address this issue biblically by making four statements or affirmations about the character of God. Now, what I will not do is give easy answers. I will not give four steps to feeling better about the pain in your life. I'm not going to be able to close the loop for many of you, but I want to share these biblical affirmations because when you recognize the heart of God in all of this, not just his hand, but when you recognize the heart of God, you start seeing a merciful and loving Heavenly Father. So don't put your trust in what God can do or what you think he should do. Put your trust in God. Put your trust in his heart and his love for you as his child and for this world. So four statements, four statements about the character of God. The first one is this, and this sounds pretty simple, but it's profound, especially for non-believers. The first statement is this, God exists. 
The Bible begins with the existence of God and points to God's ultimate victory over sin when he died on the cross and was resurrected three days later. His ultimate promise is always from the book of Jeremiah to the book of Revelation. His promise is always the same. I promise you that I will make all things new. When you're in the darkness of the night, when you're the dark soul of the night, you don't believe that all things will be made new. You don't believe that the morning will come. But God has always promised that he will make all things new. Now, this morning, I'm not going to try and argue the existence of God. We leave that up to the philosophers and the theologians. And for 2,000 years, they've been trying, and they're still not very good at it, right? So what I will do is kind of flip that on its head. Um, What I want to do is approach the question from an entirely different direction, an entirely different approach. Here it is. What if I were to say that the presence of evil and unfairness and pain in the world is a strong proof of the existence of God? I tried this out of my wife and she went, huh? So let me read this again. (laughs) What if I were to say that the presence of evil and unfairness and pain in the world is a strong proof of the existence of God? Let me illustrate. Why do you feel anger and outrage at the monstrous acts of terrorism on 9-11? Why did you feel absolutely furious and outraged at that? Why did you feel broken and sad the outbreak of COVID-19, where hundreds of thousands of people are dying in our world today and more to come. Why did you feel outrage and anger at the rioting that took place recently? Or the school shootings that we hear about almost yearly? Or the Holocaust of a century ago? Selective abortion of females in China? Child abuse? Rape, the the outrage that you feel at the mention of these atrocities, listen now, presupposes that there is a difference between good and evil. Why do you know instinctively that hurting a child is wrong? Or terrorism? Or selective abortion? Why is there a human standard of good and evil? Where did it come from? Because there is a standard of what is good, philosophers call it the supreme good. And that's just another name for God. Let me give you an example. Your daughter comes running into your house, she's in junior high school, and she said, Mom, I got a 60 on my math test. And your first response is not, oh, that's wonderful. Your first response is, out of how many? Right? 60 out of 60, that's awesome. 60 out of 65, that's good. 60 out of 100, that's not good. There's a standard that really matters. The standard is the key to understanding something's value, right? My point is that there, if there is no God, no supreme good, where did we get the standard of goodness by which we judge evil as evil? Something is only good or bad if there's objective standard. Everyone has an objective standard. Everybody has kind of a moral baseline that they say, 
Anything below this is wrong. Hurting a child, rape, all those terrible, that's below the line. Up, up here, yeah, rob a bank, that's not too bad. Or, you know, smack somebody around, that's okay. But down here, now everybody has that moral baseline. C.S. Lewis said it this way. If the universe is so bad, how on earth did human beings ever come to attribute it to, it, it to the activity of a good and wise creator? God has placed this standard of good, this moral baseline in every single human being that would not exist without God. If there's no God, there's no moral baseline. Everybody, just like Lord of the Flies, do exactly as you feel, and there's no consequences because there is no moral baseline. God exists. And the presence of evil in our world is a powerful proof of his existence. Statement number two. God created us with a free will. The classic defense of God against the problem of suffering and evil is that it is not logically possible to have free will and at the same time have no possibility of moral evil. We become a puppet or robot. If you, did not have the, if you did not have the ability to say no to God, if you did not have the ability to say no to righteousness and say, I'm going to do it my own way, if you did not have that possibility at all, you would just be a puppet, a robot. God gave us a free will. It was risky, but he said, the only way that I can have a relationship, a loving kind of relationship with my creation is if they choose me they choose righteousness. They come towards me with love because that's how I come toward them. Jeremiah says that Israel and us today, when you decide which kingdom to live in, and I've talked about this before, the kingdom of God is what we experience when we become a child of God. And the kingdom of man is what we see all around us in the world. When you decide which kingdom to follow, which kingdom to bend a knee to, which kingdom to say, this is my path, Jeremiah said, choose very carefully, because it will determine your life now, and more importantly, where you will spend eternity. You see, the source of suffering and evil in our world is not God's creation, but man's freedom. So I want to look just for a moment at a couple of possible sources of evil, okay? I've written down three sources of evil and suffering. Number one, one source of evil and suffering is because of decisions that I make. I make them. Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful above all things. You have an affair your marriage fails. You abuse drugs or alcohol, your life spirals out of control. All of these things, you drink too much, you get in a car and you'll kill someone, all of these things are decisions that you make that you can't blame on anyone else. Now there's a wonderful story in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, and most of you know the story if you've been around the Bible and about around Christianity. So David is this powerful king, the greatest king that the nation of Israel has ever known. 
Uh, they're powerful. They are controlling much of uh, Europe, uh, Asia Minor, and parts of Europe. It was just a powerful kingdom, and uh, David was in charge. Probably got a little cocky. I think that's usually what happens when you become king. And uh, one day he was on his terrace, and uh, it, was, it was good to be king. You know, it's always good to be king. He looks across the way, and he sees someone else's wife. Her name was Bathsheba, uh, taking a bath. Now, instead of looking away, averting his eyes, uh, he became fixed on her, and he had an affair with her. I'm not sure that uh, Bathsheba, Bathsheba had a choice in the matter. And ultimately, uh, David arranged it so that her husband, uh, Uriah, right, would have to, uh, would be killed. And so David did all this, and he's always justifying in the way why he did it, and I wanted another wife, and blah, 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 blah. But he was wrong. So he's got a friend that's also uh, a prophet, and um, his name's Nathan. And Nathan uh, comes, hey, David, uh, I want to tell you a story. Something's going on in your kingdom, and you're, gonna be, not gonna, you're not gonna like this. It's a bad story. He said, tell me. I'll, I'll make, I'll, I'm a good king. I'll make sure everything is justified, or just, you know, justice is done. So Nathan says, okay, here's what happened. So there's two guys, a rich guy and a poor guy. Almost every story in those days started that way. So there's a rich guy and a poor guy. Now, the rich guy has everything. He's got all kinds of land and cattle and all kinds of stuff, and he's really rich. The other guy, all he has is one little sheep, really a little lamb, and he has no other possessions. And he loves that lamb, and he, it's, it's a pet, and it's his, you know, provides comfort and he just loves his little lamb and so the rich guy wants to feed some friends and so instead of taking some of his cattle or something he says I think I want to serve lamb chops okay for dinner takes the lamb from this poor guy chops it up serves it and that was the story and David by the time he hears the story from Nathan he is incensed he is furious I can't believe somebody in my kingdom would do that Somebody that has all the wealth that they could possibly have. Everything is going their way. And, and, and they, they find something that somebody else has that doesn't have a lot of stuff. And he says, I'm going to take that as well. And do you know what Nathan said to David? He said, David, you are the man. You are the guy in the story. All of us need to have Nathans in our lives to tell us the truth. That sin is on me. It's my responsibility. When I was uh, going through uh, counseling after my gambling addiction, my uh, mentor, uh, Jim Sundholm, uh, another covenant pastor and a counselor, uh, I'd meet with him once a week. This was mandated by the conference. And at first, I didn't like to do it because I felt like I was being punished because I was being punished. And, uh, and so I, uh, I went to Jim. And one, I remember one day early on, uh, you know, I was saying, hey, man, uh, you know, I know I screwed up. I, I was wrong. I know. I deceived my wife in the church. I, I know all that. But you know what the church did? And I started listing things the church did. And you know what Sherry did? She was a rascal. And she did this to me. And, and, so I, and Jim said, whoa, 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 whoa. Time out. Time out. Dwayne, your sin is your sin. And when you committed that sin and committed that deception, you forfeited the right to blame somebody else. It's on your head. That was really the turning point for me. 
I needed to take full responsibility for my sin. So there's a lot of evil in the world, brothers and sisters, a lot. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that we choose to sin. Now, there's another source of evil in the world, and that is because somebody else makes a decision to sin. Somebody else's decision. Somebody gets in a car, they've drunk too much, and they you have an accident and you lose a loved one. Uh, they hurt your child somehow, some way. All of these different things happen. I remember when the um, we were first thinking about the um, uh, COVID-19 and the pandemic and the coronavirus and everything, and people weren't quite sure what was going on, but they said, okay, you need to stay away because this is very infectious and everything. And one of the NBA basketball players by the name of Rudy Gobert uh, decided that he was going to show how ridiculous all that was. So he went around touching everybody and even licking a microphone and doing things like that. And you know what happened? He was tested positive. I wonder how many people he infected. I, I, he didn't intend to do that, but sometimes we are infected by other people's decisions. And often we are infected by other people's decisions. So... One source of evil is that we make bad decisions, we sin. Another source of evil is that other people make bad decisions, they sin. And the third is probably the most compelling. The source of evil and sin in our world is because we simply live in a broken, sinful world. Hurricanes, pandemics, earthquakes, hatred, racism, greed, power. All of these things are in this roiling, broiling cacophony of sound and people and things, and we live in a broken world. The kingdom of man is broken. And I thank God that Jesus said once again in John chapter 5, my father is always at work, and so am I, making all things new. The second statement about God, he created us with a free will. The third statement about God is this. God is all-knowing. He's the potter. Say it with me. He's the potter and I'm the clay. I'm not the potter. I'm the clay, right? If God is all-knowing, then he knows the present but he also knows the future. Jeremiah forgot that. The greatest example of what we would call not knowing what the future holds is what happened on Good Friday. Really, if we wanted to name Good Friday honestly, that should have been named Black Friday, not the day after Thanksgiving. That should have named, because what happened is God was killed that day. God was killed. Now, suppose you're the devil, and you want to kill God. And uh, so you play to his weaknesses, and his weaknesses are always about people, and loving people, and even loving our enemies. So you play to his weakness. Um, you inspire a few agents, Caiaphas, Judas, Pilate, and you enable them to crucify Jesus. He's on the cross and you know it's working because he says from Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And Satan says, I win. I win. God is dead. I just helped to kill him. But of course, you couldn't be further from the truth. What looked like the ultimate tragedy was really a complete and total victory. When you see things through the eyes of God, you don't just see the present dark night of the soul, but you see the joy that comes in the morning. We know this also from the Bible way back in Genesis chapter 50. After many chapters, you know the story of Joseph. Joseph was thrown in a a well. He was picked up uh, by some Egyptian traders and he went and he was in prison. He was in trouble. He rose to be a prince. Everything went good. But those brothers that threw him in that pit all along thought he was deader than a doornail. Well, what happened was Egypt became wealthy because of Joseph's handling of their economy and their commerce. And uh, the brothers came back to beg, and they didn't know that Joseph was there. They didn't know he was in charge, to beg Egypt for some food. And then Joseph appears. And this is what he says. Some, I said earlier that we need God's vision. You know how we say we want God's vision, 2020 vision? No. We don't want 2020 vision. We want 5020 vision. This is Genesis 5020. This is what it says. Joseph said to his brothers, You intended to do harm to me, but God intended it for good, to save the lives of many people. Isn't that beautiful? You intended to do harm to me, but God intended it for good. In Romans 8.28, we know that God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We don't always see it, but God says, listen, I'm going to write the last chapter of your life. Peggy Veter, I'm going to write the last chapter of your life, and that is to wake up in the arms of Jesus. God's promise is that. Statement number three, God is all-knowing, not just the past and the present, He knows the future. Statement number four. God is with us. Psalm 34, 18 says, God is near the brokenhearted. Now we started this message with a question from Jeremiah. Where is God when I suffer? Well, I can tell you from our experience, from Sherry and my experience, that when our son died, God was right there beside us. I can't always explain how that works, but I know that we could not have survived without his presence in our life. The victims of 9-11, God the Father whispering words of love and hope and peace. That COVID patient in the hospital that's dying, Jesus speaking words of gentleness and peace and salvation. God, listen, God enters into all of your suffering, not just some of it. God enters into all of your suffering, every pain, every sorrow, every sadness. Isaiah 53, 4 says, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. That word took up 
literally in the original language means that God ate them. God ate your infirmities. Consider every single pain, every moment of suffering, every tragedy in the world, all rolled up into one ball, eaten by God, fully tasted, fully digested, eternally. God is in the middle of every one of your pains. I can see why Jeremiah was so upset and broken. But God's answer to Jeremiah, his answer to the psalmist, his answer to you and to me is always the same. Suffering is never the last word. His word is, I am who I am. That's my name. Don't forget my name, Yahweh. I am who I am, which means literally, I will be with you. That's what his name means. Yahweh, I will be with you. He feels your pain. Remember that time that Jesus was told that his friend Lazarus um, was sick. And when he found out that he had actually died, the Bible says that Jesus wept. And you think to yourself, what? How, How would Jesus weep? I'll tell you why. Because he feels every pain that we feel. He feels every sorrow that we feel. Jesus wept. His response is always his tears. Because God is near the brokenhearted. God exists. God created us with a free will. God is all-knowing. And God is with us. Brothers and sisters, if you are in the middle of the dark night of the soul, and I know many of you are, God's promises are true. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, ever. I will never let you go. I will make all things new. Jeremiah, Revelation 22. In Psalm 1828, the Lord, my God, lights up my darkness. Thanks be to God. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Father, um, so many of us have experienced the dark night of the soul. In that last verse from Psalm 18, the Lord, my God, lights up my darkness. I I can testify that that's absolutely true. But that doesn't really help somebody who's going through it right now. Father, I thank you that your love is so big, your grace is so real, your heart is so alive for us that we can't even begin to imagine it. I mean, we get so locked into this, this little kingdom, this kingdom of man, thinking that somehow this is it, this is what it is, this is what life is about, when... You remind us that um, you are in every pain. You're in every sorrow. Your tears are tears with us. And that you'll never let us go. Thank you, Father, for this word today. And my prayer is that this word would anoint every person listening with the sweetness and the presence of Jesus. His love, his compassion, His grace, His mercy. 
that you would feel it, that you would know it, that you would experience it. The grace of Jesus. I pray this in his precious name. Amen.